I'm thinking that it was probably mom taking that video because she laid the camera down and went to help that little girl. Had it been her dad, we would have seen what that yogurt looked like on that little girl's face. Uh, you know, what a, what a great, great story. And, and it's appropriate as we think about do-it-yourself, D-I-Y, do-it-yourself uh, things. And, and we're talking about sharing Jesus and sometimes that goes badly. And we're trying to say maybe there's some advice in Scripture that might help us you know, be better at sharing our faith with Christ. Now, I know that when pastors come up here, you think we're experts on everything. I mean, this book talks about all aspects of life, and we teach about all of these things, and we always come across as experts, largely because we do our research, we do our study, but that doesn't mean that we're great at all of these things. In fact, when it comes to sharing Christ, I would have to say my wife is better at this in private conversation than I am for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, outside of the public specter, uh, I, I am somewhat of an introvert. You know, in, in uh, most private settings, you know, I'm not inclined to put myself out there. Uh, Carol, on the other hand, is always engaging. You know, she's in sales and, and uh, it's a good place for her to be because that's just her personality. She's always engaging in conversation. Now, there's another reason as well. And, and that's because in our culture, whenever you're talking uh, to a man, I, I don't, it's probably sexist, but it's true, that people will always ask what you do for a living. It's like the second question. And, and so as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor, that's a deal killer for any conversation about Christ because then I'm just doing my professional thing. You know, it doesn't come across as very authentic, very sincere. You know, you begin to just trot out all that you know and, and you embarrass them by what they don't know. And so that's never good. So I've tried deception. Uh, I think that's good. I, you know, I, I sometimes say, well, I'm a consultant. And, uh, but see, then they follow up, don't they? They always say, well, what do you consult at? And, and then I say, lots of things, you know. <laughs> or, or I raise money for non-for-profits, which I do. And then they say, well, what kind of non-for-profits? And I say, oh, all kinds, you know. And, and so then, you know, that, that's that old saying, when first you practice to deceive, oh, what a tangled web we weave, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so it's always awkward for me. But for Carol, not so much. In, in fact, uh, a lot of times in our culture where you really have the opportunity for an in-depth conversation is in a situation like this. You know, when you find yourself in an airplane. And, and sometimes those are really close quarters, almost too close. And I know what that feels like watching people who are coming down the aisle and you say, no, 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 not, not here, not here, not here. And, and, uh, we were headed, and I don't remember when. Carol will remember this probably better than me. She's better at that as well, recalling things. But we were headed uh, probably for a week off, maybe to Florida or somewhere. Who knows where we were going. But when I get in vacation mode, I always buy a book. I typically read a book while I'm, while I'm gone. So I might have already had my book open or else a hobby magazine, and I have many, Carol will tell you. And uh, so I was going to just settle in for an hour and a half of reading. And uh, Carol sits down, and, and graciously she agrees to take the center seat. I'm on the aisle. And then there was a gentleman sitting on the window seat. Now, we had not even pushed off from the gate yet. We had not even left the gate. And she begins in conversation. And, and typically when she's in a plane, she'll say, Well, are, uh, are you from St. Louis headed out for some reason? Or did you just visit here and you're headed back home? What's the deal? You know, start in a, in a, in a way in which you have common ground. And, and this gentleman said, no, I was just visiting St. Louis. And she says, well, what brings you to St. Louis? And he says, well, uh, I'm an elder in the Mormon church, and, and you just dedicated a temple here, so I came to visit the temple. And, and Carol said, 
Wow, what a coincidence. My husband's a Christian pastor. You're an elder in the Mormon church. You guys have a lot in common. Steve, why don't you change seats with me? <laughs> I don't know exactly what my facial expression said, but, but I'm sure he wasn't happy about it either. You know, And, and uh, it was a good opportunity to learn more uh, about his faith and his perspective on things. I, I've learned to ask more questions than I do you know, uh, you know, preach at people when it comes to matters of faith. But it, it's always a bit awkward for me. Uh, but it's a lesson that we need to learn, especially in this culture that we live. You know, this uh, North American culture, uh, which some would say is more secular than it is spiritual. And certainly pluralistic in its understanding of God and the nature of God and the nature of what is true. In fact, our president got himself in trouble uh, when he was Senator Obama by this saying. He said, whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just a Christian nation. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. He said that when he was a senator back in the day. And man, that was thrown up to him many, many times, you know, trying to get us Christian people not to give him any respect. You know, that may trouble you, and it probably troubles me. I wish we were a Christian nation, but I don't disagree with him. I, I think he's probably more accurate than not. In fact, even our founding fathers, if you go back and study the faith of our founding fathers, uh, there's no question John Adams, strong Christian, Bible-believing, strong Christian person, who constantly engaged in theological arguments with the other founding fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson. They were close, somewhat adversarial, uh, sometimes embittered towards each other, uh, but also passionate and concerned for each other. And John Adams constantly witnessed to Thomas Jefferson, who was a self-proclaimed deist. He believed that God's, you know, created the world and then God stepped back and said, now you guys, let's see what you do with it. You know, that's kind of a deistic approach uh, to understanding God, more of an agnostic. Now, I don't know where Thomas Jefferson finally landed on Jesus Christ because I do know that he made his own Bible. He took all of the words that Christ spoke in the New Testament and he wrote them on uh, white paper. And he studied the sayings of Jesus. You know, not all the other narration, not all the other stories, but just the sayings of Jesus. But just because someone respects Jesus as a great man and a moralistic teacher does not mean that they accept him as Lord and Savior or the Son of God. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi uh, and his nonviolent resistance against the British in India was also a great student of Jesus Christ. And he obviously was a Hindu and, and not a follower of Christ. He said, I like your Jesus. I don't care much for you Christians. You know, it, it was his approach to things. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, we know, listened to a lot of Christian preachers. But where he stood on matters of faith, no one knows for sure. The same with George Washington, although I believe he probably came down more on the side of Christ. Now, uh, even... Some of our great Ivy League colleges were established as Christian institutions and established to train Christian pastors. In fact, Harvard was first established as a divinity school. And one of its great spokesmen and one of its most famous uh, uh, graduates was a man by, by the name of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, and probably one of the great thinkers in all of American history. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, although he was ordained a pastor... Uh, gave up the Christian faith and self-defrocked. He said, I'm a self-defrocked follower of Christ. You know, he removed himself from the church because he came to believe, and this is in 1803, he made a speech at Harvard. He said, Jesus was a wise man, but no son of God. 
The miracles are unnatural and thus indefensible. The truth can only be found through introspection, but never taught. So that Christianity has developed into a very false, very corrupt system, not unlike the myths that the nation of Greece and Egypt perpetuated, a petrified religion. In fact, he went on to say in that speech in conclusion, he said, when the pulpit is usurped by a formalist, you're looking at one, somebody who believes the Bible is actually the truth and the word of God, uh, he said, then the worshiper is defrauded and discouraged. And I would say that that's probably accurate in terms of understanding how people look at religion in America today. Uh, I would say we're more of a Hindu culture than we are a Christian culture. I don't mean to offend, but Hindus tolerate and believe there are many ways in which to get to heaven. We have one view. We believe it's valid. We believe it leads to eternal life. But other religions have other ways, and we believe those are also equally valid for them, and they can discover and find God that way too. And, And so we're pluralistic in our understanding of what is true. You know, to be intolerant in America is is a bad thing. Now, I want to be tolerant, but I I would prefer the word respectful because tolerant doesn't necessarily uh, imply in my mind uh, that I accept everything everybody else teaches, but I at least ought to respect it so that I can have an honest uh, conversation. I know this is true about America because every time we get into a religious season like Christmas or Easter— You know, we know that the Jewish people are also celebrating Passover. Uh, Muslim people are celebrating Ramadan. And and we know that uh, our news magazines and our online stories that we read now and even the specials that come on cable TV always demythify the truth about God. And they'll find mainland Christian teachers who will say, well, let's uncover the real Christ. And what they mean by that is, uh, let's eliminate the myths about this historic person, Jesus. You know, we can't accept the virgin birth. We can't accept the resurrection of the dead. And and still yet, we call ourselves Christian, and we teach that somehow by following him, we can find the truth that will lead us to eternal life. They will say that the Bible is neither scientific nor inerrant. You know, we sit in judgment of the Scripture. The Scripture is not allowed to sit in judgment of us. You say, well, then why do most people go to church? I would say to you, most people don't go to church. But why do most go to church who do go to church? I I think it's because uh, they want to establish a good life, a moralistic life. They want to become better, perhaps even more successful, you know, because they believe these values do lead to success in life. Or just be reminded of higher values. And I say, why why have I said all this in my introduction? Because I'm about to read to you a section of Scripture that was written to the church that was at Colossae. Now, Colossae was, a, was an ancient town, even more ancient than Ephesus, that was found in inland Turkey. It was not along the coast. Now, since that town was founded, uh, the culture began to be more seafaring, and so they traveled more by sailboat than they did over land. And so Colossae had lost its importance already, but it was still a cultural center. And in Colossae, where Paul had never actually visited He's writing a letter to the Christians who are there because other people had told them they need your encouragement, Paul. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's writing a letter to them. And he knows that in Colossae, like most uh, towns and cities of that era, uh, there was Greek philosophy, there was Roman rationalism, pragmatism, and there was also Jewish traditionalism and Jewish legalism. And, And so he's trying to wade through all of that and talk to them about Christ And he's also trying to give them good counsel about how they can talk about Christ in such a place. So it's good for us because I think that's kind of where we live as well. 
Now I'm going to read through these four short verses, then I'm going to come back and unpack them. Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. It says everyone, but it really uh, is better translated each person. So let's uh, take a look at verses 2 through 4 where Paul starts uh, his conversation. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, before Paul even speaks about how you have a conversation or how you start a conversation, he says you need to do some things to prepare yourself. You need to be in prayer, and you need to think about your conduct. Before you open your mouth, prayer and conduct, and we're going to see that here. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, okay, pray about being alert, and be thankful, and also pray for us. So, Pray about being watchful, pray about being thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door. This is why you should pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim our message, which is the mystery of Christ, you know, uh, who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. First of all, Paul says, pray that you might be watchful. Pray that you might be alert. Now, let me extend some grace towards you in this matter of having a conversation about Christ. It's not up for you to convince anybody that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. That's God's work. Don't assume for yourself things that you can't achieve. You can't present such a perfect argument that people will believe. Now, I think arguments, factual arguments can be made about the historicity of the Bible about prophecy and fulfillment. I mean, you can prove these things to be true, but that will convince nobody. It's always amusing to me that people said, if we could just find the ark, and they searched the mountains of Turkey, you know, if we could just find the ark, that would prove to everybody that the Bible is true. I think, give me a break. They had Jesus walking the face of the earth doing miracles, and people didn't believe in him. You know, I don't think finding some wood in the mountain is going to convince anybody. So he says, be watchful. You know, be alert. Uh, he doesn't pray for an outcome here. He doesn't pray that, that my words would convince somebody to believe. And God has made us all with free will. We have the ability to reject God. And some of us have done that uh, for some time in our life. And we know other people who are doing that. That does not mean, however, that God does not go to work on them. And, and their resistance is more than just resistance of an argument. It's a resistance of the Spirit of God. Because the Bible says when you unleash the truth of God on somebody, God accompanies that word. It's not just counsel. It's not just a position. There's a spiritual impression that's made on a person's heart. You know, we pray for two reasons. One, to engage God in our work. And secondly, that we might be focused on these things that are important and and keep our mind focused on things that God would have us to understand. He says, so pray that you would be watchful. And pray that you would be grateful. Throughout almost all of Paul's writings, whenever you find the word prayer, you will also find with thanksgiving. 
And, and that's in almost all of his letters, whether it's Galatians, Colossians, Philippians. He always says, pray with thanksgiving. Why is that? I think it's interesting as he's about to tell people about how to interact with people who don't believe what you believe. He's encouraging them to focus on things that are good in life. Now, in the story of Jesus and the ten lepers, Jesus healed all ten of them. How many came back and gave him thanks? Just one. Ten percent. If you would examine your prayer life, I think you would be the exception if one out of ten prayers were in gratitude to God for things. You know, I think it's probably less than that, to be honest. And Paul is saying, come on, be grateful, be thankful in your prayer life. Why is that? Because a person who is negative, a person who is always in a struggle, a person who is always focused on their problems, which is where most of our prayers go, is not an endearing person. They're not a winsome person. But a person who sees everything as the cup half full, a person who is always acknowledging the good in their life, that's the kind of person you want to hang with. Because that's an upbeat person. Even when you have struggle in your life, this person is saying, wow, you know, this is interesting. I wonder how God's going to use this in my life. Even difficulty. And they're constantly thinking about the things that God is doing that are gracious and good. That's the kind of person that is attractive to others. So Paul urges Christians, pray with gratitude. Be watchful and pray with gratitude. And then he also says, pray for us too. He's asking you to pray for other Christians. Now, this is the Achilles heel for denominationalism. And Lutherans are about as bad as this as anyone because we know what's true. You know, we stand on doctrine. We're the church of the Reformation. This we believe, this we reject. And so we're always about what's true and what's wrong. And so when we think about Roman Catholics, we say, well, they believe this. And we think about Baptists, well, they believe that. And, you know, instead of uniting, we're often focused on what is wrong and what is negative. I got to say that we exist in a culture, especially here in West County, where there are some awesome Christian churches around us. You know, there, there are some great Roman Catholic churches around us. I know some great Roman Catholic friends. And you know what? Every Christmas they celebrate the birth of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, they celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, their Savior, on Easter. You know, a family church believes in Jesus Christ. They may believe other things that, that we struggle to accept or would even reject. The same with uh, the crossing. We should give thanks that we're in the midst of other Christians. And when you find another Christian, instead of focusing on what they believe that's different, say, well, how's that going? That's a great church. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for your pastor? Paul says, pray for us. You know, that we're in a culture where we as Christians are in the minority. You know, we should recognize that other Christians are alongside us speaking about the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And we should try to find those things that we can encourage them on. I'm not suggesting that differences don't matter. They do matter. And uh, I don't want to compromise any doctrine. Hear me? I don't want to compromise any doctrine of the Scripture as much as I can determine it to be true. But we should pray for other Christians. Paul said, pray for us, you know, even if I haven't met you. And pray what? Pray for an open door. I'm a part of an Ironman group. You know, if, if you're not in a, in a Bible study of some sort apart from here, you know, here you just sit and listen. But you learn a lot more when you interact. I would encourage you to be in a men's group or a women's group or a couple's group where you can interact. You're going to learn a lot more uh, through that interaction. Even when we prepare these messages, we meet as a group and we interact. And there's more teaching that takes place in that way. So he's saying pray for an open door. As a part of my Iron Man's group on Wednesday morning, we almost always pray. It's just a part of our nature and thinking. We pray for uh, an opportunity to see an open door. I think there are a lot of open doors in your life 
for conversations about Christ in spiritual matters. I just th- don't think you see them. You're so busy dealing with the details of life and the facts of life. You need to pray that you would be sensitive to the door that might swing open. It might even be your waitress who's been gone for a couple of days and, and you notice that she's back and, and you ask her, what's up? You know, as we have our waitress, we've been there for more than a decade. Uh, she's been there at least that long. And, and, and so we pray for her and she knows that. We get special service. <laughs> it's not why we do it, but uh, it's interesting that we've, we've developed a, a relationship. She knows we're Christian and she takes encouragement from us in that way. So pray for an open door and then pray for clarity and wisdom as you walk through that door that you would be sensitive and able to declare the mysteries of God in such a way that uh, a person could actually hear and listen to you. So first of all, he says, pray. Uh, pray for yourself that you might be focused and, and pray for others. Uh, then he says, conduct. Be wise in the way you act. Talking about your action toward outsiders. Nothing's worse than a person who doesn't walk the talk. You know, you live a certain way, but then you uh, have a certain belief. And, and people see that. They smell that on you, that uh, there's not an authentic uh, Christian here. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. And that includes also the opposite, where you're overly pious towards people. And they say, come on, you know, can you be real with me for a minute? You know, you're always, uh, you're always holier than thou. You're always preachy. So I'm just saying, be yourself, but let yourself be truly Christian. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He's talking about demonstrating your love for others. You know, not, not picking apart others, especially in the Christian faith. This last week in our Bible study, we were reading from Galatians chapter 5, and I couldn't help but think about how Christians eat each other alive uh, and point out what's wrong with another Christian rather than what's right. When we read in Galatians 5, the whole law of the Old Testament is contained in this one word, love. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you end up destroying each other. Jesus said they will know us by our love. So how we interact with each other, even in this church. You know, how we behave towards each other in this church. So first of all, demonstrate your love towards each other. And then secondly, demonstrate wisdom toward outsiders. Uh, I mentioned last week I was in Idaho uh, uh, visiting our son, and Carol went with me. And uh, I was with her for about a day, and then Josh and I went up into the wilderness to hunt. And uh, she stayed and did her grandma duties with, with all the grandkids. Thank you, Carol, for letting me do that. And, uh, and what's interesting is that my son is now a pastor in Idaho, our son, and uh, he's 37 years old. Hard to believe that. Uh, I've been here 25 years. He's 37 years old. Uh, I was actually 36 when I became uh, the pastor here, the senior pastor here. He, he's now older than I was when I came here to be a pastor. But I like to add this explanatory note and say, but that's because... He's my son by my wife's first marriage. I don't add the fact that I am her first marriage, but uh, nevertheless, you know. Uh, so anyway, we were out there, and, and it was interesting that while we were out hunting, there's a man in his congregation who's an expert uh, in mountain hunting, which I am not. You know, I'm used to white-tailed deer and things that happen in Missouri, uh, but, and that's a different world, and I'm learning. I felt like I went on a grad week. Uh, to learn about how to hunt in the mountains. And this man walked up to our camp on Sunday to join us, and he brought his scope, and it was just fascinating. He brought a spotting scope, and it's fascinating how he works a grid work on a mountain, and he can see, like we would look through uh, this scope to look at planets, he dissects a mountain, and he saw more animals in one afternoon uh, than I had seen the entire time I was there because he has a scientific approach to that. But before we went out that morning, Josh turned to me. Now, it's very early in the morning. It's very cold. It's very dark. 
and we were about to go out and do some spotting and scoping. Uh, and Josh turns to me at the campfire, and he turns his back to this guy so he won't hear him. And he says, Dad, he said, uh, let Gary do most of the talking. <laughs> what he was saying was, be wise towards outsiders. This guy knows more about this than you do. You know, don't overrun him with your points of view. In fact, he was very deferential to me because he knew I was a pastor and he was very respectful. And he would ask my opinion. I'd say, I have no opinion. You know, tell me what you think. And, and I, I think that's true when you're engaging other people. Uh, somebody has said God has given you two ears and only one mouth. You should listen about twice as much as you talk. You know, your, your best opportunity for a conversation with somebody is to listen and to pay attention to what they know and to react to what they are saying rather than just come out with your point of view. He says, make the most of every opportunity. And I think every situation presents opportunity. If something is going bad in somebody's life, that's a great opportunity for you to say, well, tell me more about that, or, or would it be okay if I pray about that? You know, I, I know people who don't go to church that I hang with, and, and, uh, and they've begun because of my relationship uh, to begin to share more personal things with them. I have never, ever had one of them, you know, even some Jewish friends, I've never had one of them ever say, no, I don't want you to pray for me. I, I don't think they believe what I believe about prayer, but they're saying, hey, can't hurt, it might help. You know, go ahead, take a crack, you know, because I'm in a hard place. You know, every opportunity presents an opportunity for the gospel. And if something's going good in their life, people want to talk about blessings in their life. They want to talk about their kids and what they just achieved. Or they want to talk about some success they've had or something they're doing in life that's exciting. You know, give an opportunity, and I guarantee you uh, they will— develop a relationship that will enable you to share Christ. Make the most of every opportunity. And then finally, he gets to the subject of speaking. After he's talking about how you behave and how you pray, he gets to the main point about when you speak. And he begins uh, in verse 6 by saying this. He said, let your conversation, now when you do have that conversation, let it be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every person. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you can have a meaningful conversation. Now, in the public sector, Christians are mostly known as judgmental and critical. You know why that is? Because Christians are typically judgmental and critical. You know, we are. Uh, even, if, uh, even if we don't say it out loud, our body language and our sense of propriety uh, is understood by how we react to things. And we are seen to be judgmental and critical. In fact, I had a friend recently come up to me and say, uh, Hey, Steve, we're going to be grandparents. And then lowered his voice and kind of leaned in close and said, But you know they're not married. I thought that was interesting, just the way that got presented to me. Hey, Steve, we're going to be grandparents. But you know they're not married. I mean, he felt a little condemned. He was talking to a Christian pastor he was wondering how I'd react to that. And uh, he wanted to share the good news, but so what do you say to that? Do you say, oh, I'm sorry? A lot of Christians might. Or do you say, hey, congratulations, that's good news. Now just think if the grandpa and grandma feel this way about their daughter who became pregnant, how does that girl feel about coming to church? Will she ever be in church again? Wondering what we might think of her, that she's pregnant and not married? Is that full of grace, 
Awesome. Now, I know why you would be concerned, and I would be concerned, too, if it was my child, because I want the very best for my kid. You know, and I know that when we are obedient to the Lord, uh, that that's the very best. And so we would eventually get around to that conversation, but that would not be the first thing out of my mouth. You know, well, you know, you're not even married. You know, you're no daughter of mine. And I know well-intentioned, self-righteous, you know, Bible-thumping Christians have had that conversation and have made that decision. You know, how is that full of grace? You've not only cut your relationship off or impinged upon your relationship, you've also uh, removed them one step further away from the, the wisdom and the love and the affirmation of, of God in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, my, my son's a pastor out in, uh, in Idaho, and, and he, we talked a lot of ministry while we were up in the, in the mountains. And uh, he, he's struggling because some of the pastors are being critical of him in his area. And I said, so tell me more about that. And we've been, we email each other, we text each other uh, during the course of the week. And, and he, he said, well, some of their members are starting to come to my church, and, and that's bothering them. And he goes, and I don't know how to react about that. I, I don't control where people go to church. And he's conducting a gracious ministry, and, and he's, he's loving, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people are drawn to that. And, and uh, one pastor got on his case because a couple came to him to get married who was actually members of a different church. And uh, this pastor got in his face. He said, you don't even know that they're living together, and I told him I wouldn't marry him. And uh, Jess says, how do you handle that, Dad? And I said, well, I said, think about it. Their friends have been telling him, you, you kids need to get married. Their parents have been saying, hey, you kids, you know, we love you both, but you need to get married. And then their Christian friends are saying, hey, why aren't you married? And then they go to church, and the pastor says, get the hell out of here. You're not married. <laughs> Is that full of grace? You know, don't even talk to me until you get your life right. You know, that's not full of grace. No, I think you ought to have the conversation. You know, and I told Josh, you ought to have the conversation. You ought to say, well, I'm glad you're here, but tell me what changed for you guys. You know, you've been living together for five years. I mean, why do you need to get married? I mean, your friends aren't married, and, and uh, mostly the people you hang with don't care. What changed for you? So you ought to have the conversation, but it ought to be full of grace. And then it says, also seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to behave towards each one. Seasoned with salt. What does that mean? You know, Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. You know, he wants you to engage the world and be a difference maker in the world. Uh, salt was either a preservative or a, 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 a flavoring, uh, a spice that, was, that made things better. That's the kind of person you should be. Now, in, in our nation, separate but equal is declared to be illegal. You know, we're against segregation of every kind, right? Unless you're Christian then segregation's okay. Uh, we uh, had sermon study this past week, and I call him Vicar May. He was our vicar two years ago, but I still call him that, uh, Mike May. Uh, he quoted a guy I didn't, hadn't heard before, uh, uh, Malcolm uh, Biggs. Uh, he said, and, and, and Mike can do accents really well. He said, uh, Malcolm Biggs likes to say, uh, when you go to Jazzercise, you don't need to go to Jazzercise for Jesus. Just go to Jazzercise, you know. But Christians go to Christian versions of everything. Why do you go to Christian versions of everything? You're to be the salt of the world. Go to, go to activities where you are the Christian. You know, engage yourself not only in groups that are known to be Christian, engage yourself in groups that are not known to be Christian and develop intentional relationships and therein be able to be a Christian influence in those places. Another good friend of mine uh, 
uh, said just recently, and he's just a tremendous guy and giving me a lot of good advice. And he says, you know that business that you're always stressing about, you know, the, the church exists to save the lost. That's good for young people. But, you know, people my age, you know, I don't even know if we know anybody who's not Christian. I say, seriously? You need to get some new friends. Because you're supposed to be salt and light, you know? You should be engaging people. And I guarantee you, you know people who aren't Christian. The majority of people in America do not attend church and would not declare themselves to be Christian. You know, they are like the, the reference that we saw in Acts chapter 18 last week. He was a godly man. It didn't say he was a Christ follower. He was just a godly man. There's a lot of godly people in the world who are prone to want to know what you believe about truth. So how do you engage them in conversation? He says, consider the circumstance of each person. You know, back in the day, we used to teach a candor approach to evangelism. It was called the Kennedy Evangelism Program, based on Dr. James Kennedy from Florida. And uh, we were doing it here when I first came. And, and uh, it, it was almost like we were Christian versions of Mormon uh, door knockers, you know, because they have a memorized approach. I love to throw them a question. They don't anticipate to see how they, you know— mentally check their book and know how to respond to me uh but the question was always if you were to die tonight would you be saved and depending on how they answered we knew five potential answers they could give to that question we knew five responses that we would always make now uh a lot of people were saved through kennedy evangelism i'm I'm not here to put it down i remember uh dr uh d.l moody uh, after the civil war uh, used to have altar calls, and a lot of churches still do that. You know, on Sunday they say, you know, if you haven't received Jesus or you want to receive Jesus right now, we're going to sing just as I am. And while we sing that, we want you to come down and declare yourself for Jesus. And some people were saying, you know, I'm against decision theology. It's not in the Bible. People will begin to put their trust in their decision rather than Christ's death on the cross. And then later they may question their decision because they were emotional. And they, they say, well, I was emotional. I was, I was psychologically manipulated. And, and so then they doubt their relationship with Christ. And so somebody began to argue with Moody about how he did evangelism. And Moody said, well, how do you do it? And he says, well, you know, I haven't figured it out yet. I, I, I don't have a way, but I'm, I just know your way is not right. And Moody said to him, well, I like the way I do it wrong better than the way you don't do it at all. There you go. <laughs> so, so I'm not here to put down a canned approach. At least you're having a conversation. But it's much better to realize that you're a unique person. You have a unique story. And those people who are in your relationship have a unique relationship with you. And they have a unique story. Treat people as individuals. I think it's far better for you rather than to say, well, the Bible says... Or the Christian faith says, it's better to say to them, well, here's what works for me. You know, when I'm in that situation, uh, the Bible says, you know, a kind word turns away wrath. That works for me. You know, when, when somebody's coming at me really strong, a kind word turns away wrath. And then you can have a conversation. You know, that's what works for me. Or in that situation, uh, I would typically pray about it. They are interested in what works for you. And they do respect you. Uh, they already have a relationship. They've already revealed the situation to you. So explaining to them what works for you is a powerful way to have uh, a conversation that can move into a spiritual uh, dynamic and bring people into a relationship with Christ that you already enjoy. Now, we like to say at this church that we want to be culturally relevant. We want to be biblically sound. And we want to be outwardly focused. You know, th those are three modifiers that pretty well describe who we are. When you think about culturally relevant, we, we like to study, you know, who out there is speaking to the culture 
And why are, why are they so popular? Because they have a handle on things. A lot of times that will be uh, uh, comedians, you know, right now, you know, Leno or, or um, uh, John Stewart or, or Letterman or, or, you know, it's interesting. You don't have to agree with their opinions, but they obviously have a following. Mark Twain was a guy like that. When it came to starting conversations, he had a lot to say. Uh, he said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're an idiot rather than open it and remove all doubt. That's what he said. <laughs> and so, so I think in a way that kind of fits the text. Before you have the conversation, before you prove yourself an idiot, pray about it. You know, and pray for others who are also having the conversation. And then consider your behavior, not just what you're going to say, not just your expert advice. He also said when you find yourself on the side of the majority, and this is so true in America, then pause and reflect because something's probably wrong, you know. The majority of Americans don't believe and don't hold true what you believe and hold true. You are different. That's why you're a light. You are different. That's why you're a salt. But the most important quote of all was this one when he talked about having conversation. He said, kindness is the language that blindness can see and the deaf can hear. You know, it's trite but true what they say. That people don't care what you know if they don't know that you care. May God bless you as you have these meaningful conversations after much prayer and consideration of your behavior as you engage each person according to their need and according to your own Christian experience and share Christ. Let me pray for you. Lord, we do ask your favor and, and blessing on our life. We all have relationships, and it's through these relationships that we have the best opportunity to share Christ. Oh, yeah, maybe they'll hear it through a song on radio. Maybe they'll uh, catch a sermon online. And uh, maybe, maybe they'll come in stumbling into a church looking for truth because their life is such a mess. But more than likely, it'll be through a conversation they have with a friend that they respect. So help us be that kind of person that Paul said, you know, full of grace and willing to be salt in their life, you know, good counsel, gracious wisdom in their life that we might help them in their circumstance and reveal you in the process. We ask it in Christ. Amen.